I'd like to do an intro, but I can barely see because Murph's face <laughs> looks like the surface of the sun. Yeah, baby. I got a little color. I got my vitamin D today. You got your vitamin S for sunburn, man. <laughs> Let's see. Can't tell from my arms. Yeah, my arms. Ah, a little bit. You got a little bit. So uh, anyway, hey, guys, welcome to episode 122, Game of Crimes. I am Morgan. This is... Murph. Hey, everybody. And what were you doing just before? I mean, we're, we're recording this on a Sunday because I was tied up all week, and I'll tell you about that in a second. But you were doing something pretty awesome. You sent me a video. Oh, yeah. We got to go to the Orlando Air Show. And the uh, the the stars were the uh, Air Force Thunderbirds. I haven't seen them since I was a kid. I've seen the Blue Angels several times, but I haven't seen them since I was a kid in Tennessee. But just going to the air show just makes you so freaking proud of our military and um, what they can do. They had an F F thirty five there that just I, oh my gosh! It was a lady pilot, and she had that thing. I mean, she could turn that thing on a dime. She's come through at supersonic speeds. You know, they didn't break the sound barrier because they didn't want to hurt everybody's ears. But when she would come through, you know how you get that vapor coming off the jet? Yeah. We've got some pictures of that coming through. Then they had the uh, F-18 Super Hornet with that thing screams as well. They brought that through that thing through at, at less than 100 miles an hour, and it was kind of almost at a 45-degree angle like it was dancing in front of you. I mean, <laughs> just And that, motor, that engine was just screaming, just growling at you. And then the Thunderbirds... Twice they, you know, you get focused in on the four main diamond formation, and then one of them will sneak up behind you and just scream through at about you know a bazillion miles an hour and just make you crap your pants. <laughs> the second time he, he did, you know, that's the first time everybody laughs and then everybody's watching. Well, then all of a sudden he sneaks in again and gets you a second time. And that one I even ducked when he came. Through. <laughs> Tell I, you what, no. it make, <laughs> makes you think twice if you want to be a bad guy or girl out there or a terrorista. It's like. Death from above, man. Oh, my gosh. It just makes you so freaking proud of our military. It really does. I, I can see why they do that. Yeah, well, I had uh, I had an exciting weekend. I wasn't going quite as fast, though. I was, yeah. uh, no, I did a, I did the, it's called the Great Pumpkin Ride. I did uh, 64 miles. They had a 24, 49, and a 64. So I did the 64 mile ride. Where'd you have to go for that? Uh, down in Warrington. So Fauquier County. Uh, yeah. Beautiful. I mean, it was perfect day. Temperature started out at about 65, went up to 80. It's peak color. I mean, it was just beautiful riding through there. And uh, so it was uh, it was a it was a fun time. I mean, it's it's been a while because of COVID and everything else. I was supposed to do some century rides, 100 mile rides. This one's mm -hmm. called a metric century. It's 64 miles. But uh, you it was voluntarily rode 64 miles on a bike. Damn skippy, man. I would, can you sit down in a regular chair right now? What do you think I'm doing? I'm like bouncing around. I'm fun. Hey, it's it's like anything else. If you train, it's like firearms. Anything else. If you just train, you train, you train. So it's like you know. I was this was this was fun though. Um, I just got my bike back. I had it all completely worked over, new gears, you know, the whole works. So it's like this thing was brand new. Just it was great to go out there and ride. It was fun though. There's lots of people out there. It's a good time. Um, but what what was funny is all these people that you start off. It's like one thing I've learned at my age. You know, it's kind of like. Uh, uh, you know, just no need for speed, man. Just steady state. Just keep going. All these young whippersnappers who oh, go yeah. flying past you. <laughs> I ended up passing a lot of them towards the end as they're just dragging ass because they were trying to impress everybody. And I'm going steady state. I mean, I averaged about 17 miles an hour. It was 2,800 feet of climb, you know, going down and up. Oh, One of the hills, if you're into biking, was 8%. That was a bitch. I'm oh. telling you. And, and to go through all that and come home with biker's ass. 
No, I tell you what. No, it, I got I got some good new um, uh, bibs. You know what they call bibs and stuff. So it's all good anyway. Hey, but here we are pontificating about that when we need to get to our show. But this was just a fun weekend. You had fun. It was. Oh, I we had went. You yesterday. We got to see the first time ever the United uh, University of Central Florida uh, versus the West Virginia Mountaineers, and we and got the tickets. Ears won. Yes, they did. Well, Notre they Dame. Good. Notre Dame stomp pit. Man, it should have been a shut up, but I think they gave a you know. They gave him a freebie. They gave him seven. But uh, and Kansas upset Oklahoma 38-33. I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> I'm not and a big Kansas, Kansas fan, State but won. I like I like them more than I like Oklahoma. Well, Kansas State and Kansas both won. So good day for college football. Anyway, Mr. Raccoon, you still look like a raccoon. I know. I'm gonna look good for a while, aren't I? <laughs> Have my sunglasses on. Anyway, well, hey, let's get into this, guys. Hey, well, anyway, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Uh, head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. Let us know what's going on. Really helps us out. We really appreciate it. And by the way, if you were just fascinated by our stories about me going 64 miles and Murph, you know, <laughs> taking a football game and seeing the Thunderbirds. Uh, all in one weekend, man. Just uh, head on over there. Give us a five stars. Head, all, head, all, all, head on also over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. With our guest coming up, two of his books we have listed on there. So that's one of the big reasons why you got to go there. Follow us on that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But where you got to be is patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have got Murph is on probation. He has been given a chance to come up with a new movie. And I think you picked a good one. Yeah, I'm trying to redeem myself here. Well, we can tell people what it is. If you're on Patreon, we're going to review American Made. American made. American. You know, that's that's actually something that Javier and I talk about when we do our presentations, our little shows. Um, so if you want to hear about the real American made and how it compares, you know, the movie versus real life, gotta come over to Patreon. America. America. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We'll be doing that. We'll be doing our Warden of the Throne. You know, it's usually when we take on a, a more sensitive topic where we become more opinionated, uh, you know, than we normally are. And then we've got 911, what is your emergency coming up? So we got all sorts of good things, Q&A, um, all sorts of just fun things coming up. So catch us, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. But you got to also go to Facebook, type in Game of Crimes fans, our mafia queen, our favorite one, Sandy Salvato rules with a v- iron fist with a velvet glove. Just join us. I think we're approaching, we're over 900, maybe approaching 1,000 members of our little inner sanctum, our inner circle of hilarity, nice. jocularity, just fun. Nice. Yeah. Good job, Sandy. Good job. Keep that up. By the way, she just came back from a cruise. I think she caught COVID on the cruise. Ugh. You know, I'm not saying I got COVID, but I got the snots and the sniffles and the coughs right now. Good thing we're doing this virtual, buddy. (laughs) This week I was in Houston and Nashville both. Uh, Well, hey. I'm a gift. Well, you know, it is that time of year. And speaking of that time, guess what time it is, Murph? It's time for Small Town Police Slaughter. Who knows what that theme song is? Da, 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 Yeah, I don't have that. Gil- Gilligan's Island. Oh. That's there you I go. I felt anyway, like when I went hey. to SOD, I felt like I was on the island. Couldn't get off. <laughs> well, hey, Murph. Yes. Have you ever had one of those days where you thought, here I am. I'm a, I'm a gentleman. I'm a little lonely. Um, I think I will go out and find, uh, you know, somebody who takes money and trades it for sex and maybe have a threesome. No, I have never done that. Well, then, good, because you won't be this guy, a guy named Jad Shipman, 
uh, he decided uh, he was that found this little thing called TNA Board. It's an online site advise, er, advertising escort services. He resides in Longview, a city 40 miles north of Vancouver. This is in Washington. Uh, so he his screen name was The Malamute. So he offered $440 to a forum user named Diane to have sexual contact with him and his friend. Okay. Who was his friend? A miniature horse. <laughs> uh, I love I love that website TNA. I mean, you know, people can figure out what that means, but you know, in Afghanistan when I was over there, you know what TNA stands for? Toes and ankles. Toes and ankles, man. That's all you got. Toes and ankles, head, yeah. shoulders, knees, and toes. Anyway, so. Uh, <laughs> But apparently this wasn't Diane's, quote, first rodeo. She had indicated that she had had um, sexual relations with an animal before, um, but thought the miniature horse and what this... I don't even want to read this because, dude, it makes me... Oh. oh. I don't know uh, do. But anyway, but an investigator checking it out found out that they had two miniature horses in his pasture of their rural 7.62-acre property they purchased for $365,000. So... Judge released him, ordered him to have no contact with animals. That's a duh. Or Diane. Yeah. Well, um, he apparently did not charge her with felony charges, but she's been referred to the lower district for lesser charges. And maybe some counseling? Ugh. Miniature horses. Jeez. Oh, there's so many jokes there, I don't even want to go there. I know. I know. Hey, well, Murph, this next part, in honor of our upcoming guests, guys, we'll be talking about Jim's, 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 James Lawler, Jim Lawler, CIA, case officer, operations officer, spy recruiter extraordinaire. I thought, Mm -hmm. I I worked on this for the last week. I actually got some declassified CIA jokes. Okay. <laughs> Truly. Wait wait till it. So Alan Dulles was the former head of the CIA, tells of the Russian who reappeared in Moscow after an absence of 15 years and explained that he'd been in prison for saying Joseph Stalin was a fathead. Now, this was being told under the uh, de-Stalinization program. Uh, and the, so Dulles says, man, that's a long sentence for criticizing the leader. A sympathetic friend told him, he said, oh, I only got one year for that. He said the other 14 years was for revealing a state secret. Oh. Oops. But um, bump. Thank you very much. Oh, and this way we wanted to pass it around. So a worker standing in a liquor store line says, "I've had enough. Save my place. I'm going to shoot Gorbachev." Two hours later, he returns to claim his place in line. The friend says, "Did you get him?" He says, "No. The line there was even longer than the line here." <laughs> Jim, I apologize for Morgantown these crappy jokes. I know, but this is. I remember when Ronald Reagan told this next one. He says, an American tells a Russian that the United States is so free, he can stand in front of the White House and yell, to hell with Ronald Reagan. The Russian replies, what this big deal, Comrade? I can stand in front of Kremlin and yell, same thing, no problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. Murphy, this last one is in honor of you. Uh Uh-oh. There was an agent overseas, remember. Agents are people who spy for the United States. They are not CIA agents. They are agents, CIA case officers, intelligence officers, operations officers, but never an agent. But agents are people who spy for the U.S. So there was an agent overseas. He happened to be in Ireland, and there was this emergency, and it was necessary to contact him immediately. Mm-hmm. So they call in another agent, and they said, now, you go there. His name is Murphy, and your recognition will be here, will be to say, tis a fair day, but it'll be lovelier this evening. So... 
The agent goes to Ireland, a little town in Ireland, into the pub, elbowed himself up to the bar and ordered a drink and said to the bartender, now how would I get in touch with Murphy? And the bartender says, well, if it's Murphy the farmer you want, it's two miles down the road, uh, and it's the farm on the left. He says, now, if it's Murphy the bootmaker, he's on the second floor of the building across the road there. And he says, but by the way, my name is Murphy. So the guy, the agent, picked up his drink, and he said, well, tis a fair day, but it'll be lovelier this evening. He says, oh, it's Murphy the spy you want, then. (laughs) (laughs) He must have been a cork. (laughs) That's where all the Murphys are. Uh, anyway, we thought we would tell some declassified CIA jokes in if honor we, of uh, in honor of our upcoming guests, which we got through a previous guest, Mark Cameron, author extraordinaire. Uh, I've got his Arliss Cutter series. Uh, he wrote seven of the Tom Clancy novels, and so Mark hooked us up with Jim Lawler. And Steve, I got to tell you, his his writing is unbelievable. I mean, I've got the book here. I've got one of his books here, Living Lies, a novel of the Iranian nuclear weapons program. And he, you'll hear him talk about it in the in the upcoming interview here. This is not an autobiography, but it is based on things that he participated in. So it's it's work of fiction, but it's kind of based on on real facts. Outstanding oh, yeah, well, read. It's, it's a book that's once you start reading, it's hard to stop. Well, he's Which, got two books. So that's first one, Living Lies. Uh, a novel of the Iranian nuclear weapons program, and then also in the twinkling of an eye, a novel of biological terror and espionage. And as we found out, we'll save we'll save a little bit there. He had a nexus with one of the worst spies in U.S. history, and his third book about traitors is going to be yeah. about them. And I got to tell you, so when you see his picture on the website, Murph, he is the most unassuming guy, and that's why he was one of the most prolific recruiters of spies. Yeah, for the United States. Remember, he said his batting average was about, I think, 97, 98%. Yeah, and you know, they, they say the best spies are those that are, are the most non-memorable when you see them. There, there's nothing or nothing extraordinary about them that would cause you to remember those people. So Fly under the radar. Well, takes. this dude flew under the radar, but man, he has got some fascinating stories, including one of the most dangerous nuclear networks ever taken down, AQ Khan. Mm-hmm. We're going to get into that. We're going to talk about that, some bioterror. But before we can get into it, Murph, I have to ask you, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous, declassified CIA joke game of all, the <laughs> game of crimes? You know, this is a lot like our buddy Rick Prado. It, it's it's a, a guest that we don't have on very often. So this truly is get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. I mean, just really get ready for some some awesome stories from Jim Lawler. We'd like to tell you about our next guest, but we ran it through the publication review board and his name was redacted. We're not allowed to tell you who he is. We can't listen. You can't hear him talk. Um, this is going to be a very short interview, isn't it, Murph? Well, if we tell you who this is, we'll have to kill you. It's one of those situations. Nah, so. you know what I used to tell people? We're not going to kill you. I'm, I'm not going to waste the information. I'm just going to kill you. Why waste the information? But hey, this is not a waste of information to tell you. We got a great guy on, comes to us through mutual friends once again, author of a couple books that he's got out right now, Living Lies, a novel of the Iranian nuclear weapons program, which is the Guild series, book one. Book two is In the Twinkling of an Eye, a novel of biological terror and espionage based in North Korea. The one, the only, the man, the myth, the legend, following in, both of them followed in their own footsteps, him and Rick Prado, Jim Lawler, former CIA operations officer, case officer, whatever you call Jim, just don't call him a CIA agent. Right, Jim? That's correct. A lot of people make that mistake. 
The agents, those are the spies that CIA officers recruit. Mm-hmm. You remember a guy named uh, James Olson, Jim Olson? Oh, absolutely. He is a expert on counterintelligence. I've read one of his books recently. The Moral uh, Dilemmas of Spying. Absolutely. Well, I've, I've read that, and I also uh, have been in email contact with him because I'm looking for some real uh, verisimilitude on a counterintelligence aspect of my third novel, basically on the trickiness of double agent operations. And there is. A, have you ever read the the uh, D- Double Cross, the book by the uh, British that was written after uh, World War II? Yeah, they were. You know, MI five was so effective, they doubled every one of the uh, Nazi Abwehr agents in London, and then either fed back false information, disinformation, or basically shut them down. I mean, I think they got one hundred percent, which is just amazing because you never get a hundred percent of all the spies in your midst. And I think they, uh, the, the accounting is, is they got everybody. And, and the ones who didn't want to play uh, along, um, some of them got shot. So, <laughs> you know, oops. yeah, oops. But that's, that's, that kept the record intact. Well, hey, look, Jim, as we do with everybody, as you can see this, and we'll talk about your third book you're working on too, but as we do with everybody, Cosa Nostra, thing of ours. How did you get started in this thing of ours? I mean, you know, it's not every day that you just walk down the street and you go, hmm, I think I'll apply for the CIA. Where can I go drop off my resume? So how did how did this adventure stop for you? It was really a, an accident, Morgan. I was in my last year of law school at the University of Texas in 1976. And anytime you're in your last year of either college or graduate school or law school, you only have one thing on your mind, and that's, I need a job. And anyways, the CIA was going to come to campus and interview for attorneys for the Office of General Counsel because the CIA, like any large bureaucracy or government agency, we need attorneys to either keep us out of trouble or frequently, in the case of the CIA, to get us out of trouble. And so this gentleman named Mr. Bill Wood came to interview prospective attorneys for our CIA's Office of General Counsel. So on a lark, I went there. We got about two or three minutes into the conversation, and Mr. Wood looked at me, and he said, Jim, have you ever thought about the clandestine service? And I said, no, I don't know what that is, because this was 1976. There was nothing really published much about the CIA. Well, real quick there, what did you know about the CIA before they were—I mean, you you understood the letters, right? But how much—this is pre-internet, pre-all that other stuff—how much did you actually know about what they did? Very little. I, I'd seen that famous Robert Redford movie, Three Days of the Condor. Uh, by the way, I've met the author, James Grady, who wrote the book, Six Days, six of, the days of the Condor. Six Days of the You can tell how Hollywood works. we got to condense it, so we went from six days to three days because we got to right. move things along. Yeah, yeah and, and Jim Grady is a great guy. But anyways, I knew very little except what Hollywood had done in one or two movies. And I was fascinated by it, though. So I took the application home with me, kind of intrigued about this. And uh, he had told me that he thought I would be good in the clandestine service. Now, mind you, he was there to hire attorneys, but something about me made him change path completely. And Mr. Wood was a former case officer himself. So I guess that old mantra about it takes one to know one uh, played in his mind, took the application home. And then reality struck me because sadly, my wife's mother was very ill. And the chances that Jim and Ellen would be moving to Washington, D.C. and then overseas, that wasn't going to happen. So I brought the application back the next day, returned it to him with some regret, and told him the timing was just not right. 
So instead of going to work for the CIA or trying to go to work for the CIA, instead, I went to work for a family business. And whenever I talk to some folks, I ask how many people in this room have been in a family business. I usually get a few hands. And I say, I bet you I know why you're no longer in a family business. It's that F word, family. Yeah. I was going to say family business could mean your name ends in a vowel, and maybe it's you know one of the people up in New York. You know what? Well, that's mean? true too. But in my case, it was my dad, my two brothers, and I loved them dearly. But it just was not satisfying. It was a metal fabrication business. And here's the bizarre thing: over the next three years, I made more money than I'll probably ever make again in my life. So financially, it was fabulous. What kind of work were you doing? It was, well, selling metal components for steel buildings. You've probably seen prefabricated buildings uh, in your state. And we had a special roll forming process where we took coils of steel, uh, either galvanized steel or painted steel, and formed them both into sheets of sheet metal as well as structural steel. And so I managed to double our sales in the three and a half years I was there, but I was finding this very, very unsatisfying. It just, you know, there, I, I learned at a young age, basically, that there's a lot more to life than making money. But you know what you learned, though? Here's where this is where it's going to play in later. You learned the art of selling. You know, selling is about reading people. Selling is about understanding, you know, what they need to come to a decision. Because I was going to ask you, did your law degree help you out at all? Well, I was also, you know, not only was I the president of this family-owned company, I was also the general counsel and and head of sales. And I would go out on sales calls. And I think you're right, Morgan, because one time I recall calling on a woman in East Texas and uh, she was running this business. I have no idea if she was married or what, but she had a young boy who was about three years old, maybe four. And he was sadly a, a Down syndrome child. And she was busy and I got down on my knees and I just played with this little boy with his toys. and. Anyways, I stood up and she had seen what I was doing. And I told her I went into kind of went into my sales pitch and she thanked me. And I didn't think anything else of it, although she did say thank you for playing with my little boy. And I went home and I didn't hear from her for about two or three months. But then she placed an enormous order with my dad's company, with my where I was running the company. And I thought maybe the human touch is really what gets to people. She remembered that. And when she needed that structural steel, she placed a very, very nice order. Now, that was not my intention whatsoever. It was just, I saw a little boy, and I got it down on my knees, and I played with him. But I was not trying to win favors with her at all. But yes, I mean, it was was good training for what I did later in the CIA. But I was coming home every night, very frustrated, boring my wife, you know, but hearing my complaints. And finally, she had it up to here. And in 1979, I remember in mid, about June of 79, she said, look, Jim, either do something about it or stop your damn belly aching. I thought, okay, that's actually smart. So I had kept Mr. Wood's card. I went into my office after dinner. I typed up a letter to him telling him that when I first talked to him in 1976, it wasn't good timing, but now was a very, very good timing for me. And by the way, my wife's mother had sadly passed away a year earlier, so we no longer had that family constraint on staying in Houston, Texas. 
Hey, quick well, question for you. Um, yes, I was a freshman in college in 79, started in 78. 79 was the Iranian Revolution, uh-huh. take over the... Uh, did that factor in at all for you, the the uh, hostage crisis in Iran, the takeover of the embassy? A little bit. You know, I mean, I've, I've my family has always been pretty patriotic. My dad was a B-24 co-pilot uh, during World War II, flew the maximum number of missions. My great-grandfather was General Michael Kelly Lawler, a general in the Union Army. He led the charge at Big Black River Bridge, uh, was a, a close associate of General Grant, who mentioned him in his memoirs. So I've had a tradition of service of service to the country. And so, yes, when, when the Iranian Revolution occurred and they took over the embassy, you know, I thought, we need to do something about this. So I, I wrote this letter, sent it to Mr. Wood. I jokingly say sometimes that I had to do a snail mail letter because Al Gore had not invented the internet yet. So <laughs> there's that. Al Gore's amazing was internet it? was not on the, although DARPA was had drawing up the plans for it at that time. That's correct. That's correct. But I, I mailed this letter off and three days later, at the very least, I got a phone call at my office at work. And this young woman never used the initials CIA. All she said was, you wrote Mr. Wood a letter a few days ago. He's going to be in Houston at the Holiday Inn on the Gulf Freeway this coming Thursday. Can you meet him in the lobby at three o'clock? I said, yes, ma'am. That phone call took maybe 20 seconds. And so I went to this interview with Mr. Wood, whom I'd met three and a half years earlier. We spent about two hours in his hotel room chatting. And he said, I'd like to fly you to Washington for some tests. That happened about two weeks later. And I spent about three days in Washington, came home, and about three months later, I was asked to come back for a second round of interviews for the polygraph, which some people mistakenly call a lie detector test, but it's not. It's a stress detector test. The uh, shrink exam, God knows how I passed that, but I did. We all, we all, <laughs> we're all sitting here wondering how the hell we passed that, even Murph going, what? Well, they, they, they only half jokingly say that when they hire case officers at CIA, the, uh, the shrinks ask, how much sociopathy do you want dialed in? Because uh, in essence, a lot of what we do is sociopathic. Um, I mean, we convince people. To commit espionage, to commit, to commit espionage. In fact, I didn't. I had not really focused on this. I had not a clue what a CIA ops officer does. And so, a few months after I had initially applied and been through the uh, vetting and the testing and the background check, finally they called me up and they offered me a job as a GS eleven case officer. And so we put our house up for sale, moved to Washington. My wife was pregnant with our first child. And I started work at CIA on February the 28th of, um, actually, oh, I'm sorry, it was February 19th of 1980. Still had no clue what an operations officer did, but I was so frustrated with the family company, I didn't care. I would have taken a job shoveling manure on the planet Neptune just to get out of Houston, Texas. Well, welcome to the federal government. You're going to spend a lot of time shoveling manure over the next 25 years. (laughs) Hey, I was going to ask you real quick. Did Mr. Wood fly down just for you to Houston? He probably was interviewing. Well, he was based out of Austin. Oh, okay. So um, he was a, I think he was a retired case officer and he was back doing all kinds of recruitment for the uh, CIA. Uh, In my case, you know, he switched tracks from office of general counsel to operations officer very quickly. 
But uh, he drove in. I'm sure he met with some other candidates in Houston at the time. I did meet some other people later in my career training class who he had recruited. So um, he was he was very good at what he did. But I started on February the 19th, 1980, not having a clue what a CIA operations officer does. And then over the next few weeks, it became abundantly clear as to what they expected me to do. And I'll be blunt. I'm to manipulate people, exploit people, subvert people, suborn people, to commit, convince them to commit treason, to become traitors. There's your biggest sales job right there, man. If if you, yeah, you think selling steel was hard? Sell somebody on the fact is if you get caught, you're going to get killed. Yeah. And I've had some of my, uh, my prospects who I've pitched who have said just that. I pitched a, uh, an, a very senior African intelligence officer once. And he said, Jim, you know, in my country, they hang people for doing things like that. He was right, by the way, they would. But then he sp- surprised me and he said, could I have a rain check? <laughs> I'll do it. Yeah. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, my young son, he's three years old. I don't need you now, but in 15 years, he'll be university age. And I might need you then. Daddy might need some money to pay for college. Right. Well, so I wrote that down. And 15 years later, he was posted to the United States and Africa Division came to chat with me. And they said, do you think your friend meant that? And I said, knowing him, yeah. And guess what, folks? We cashed that rain check in 15 years later. Suddenly he needed us. And that became what, I mean, in essence, in order to recruit someone, you have to find out what is their needs? You know, what do they need? I tell people I've pitched 50 or 60 people in my career, and I never once recruited a happy person. You don't recruit happy people. You recruit people under stress. And I found out that, you know, that's what CIA expected me to do. And not only did I, uh, was I pretty damn good at it, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. And that's the sociopathic part that I could convince people to commit crimes, which is the exact opposite of what the two of you guys did, you know, mirror opposite at least. And, and so I was actually very good at convincing people to commit crime, to commit, to be treacherous, to betray their countries, betray the network, betray the company they're in, the group that they are in. And my talent, I think, was not only my powers of persuasion, but the ability to detect fairly early whether this person was susceptible to that kind of approach or not. Yeah, because I was going to ask you, oh, go ahead, Murph. You, you. I was going to say, did you ever have, uh, rather than you selecting someone that you want to approach, did you ever have walk-ins that want to offer information? Personally, I didn't. I can tell you a story of a person who turned out to be a volunteer in a moment. I mean, I've had, I've talked to walk-ins before. Um, I had to handle some walk-ins. Uh, but I never was fortunate enough to, let's say, have a Russian KGB officer or somebody walk in and volunteer to me. How uh, many of the walk-ins ended up being like dangles? None of the ones I handled. I had several walk-ins, though, who basically were mentally unstable. They they meant well. They were not dangles, but they were just a few fries short of a happy oh, meal. I'm sorry. I got to tell you, one of our favorite stories we told on You Can't Make This Shit Up, they arrested a lady at uh, CIA headquarters, she showed up because she said she had an interview with Agent Penis. <laughs> <This> was... <laughs> That's his undercover name, obviously. <laughs> no, 
<laughs> and she was she had been she'd been cited before they ended up arresting her because she showed up before saying the same thing. Yeah, that's just say a lot of people see CIA, they get the tinfoil and the black helicopters and they think, oh, I've I, you know, I'm gonna work for the CIA. I'm gonna go in and offer my services up. Well, I had a I had a scary incident happen back on one of my on my first tour. Uh, one of my cover jobs was that I was the aide to the ambassador. And so, you know, you you basically I was posing as a State Department officer and I had to put a lot of work into being the actual aide to the ambassador in this country. And I would filter out people that wanted to talk to the ambassador and chat with him. So I had this man in my office and I could tell he was unstable. Really, he was. Now, this was in the early 80s before we had metal detectors at every U.S. embassy. We didn't have that. We didn't have the uh, type of we didn't anticipate the type of terrorism or the types of violence that subsequently developed in that decade. But this guy, he was ranting and raving and he was just distraught. I mean, he was crying. And then at one point he said to me, he says, you know, and sometimes I just feel like I want to blow my brains out. And at that point, he put his hand inside his jacket. And I thought, oh, my God, he's going to pull a gun out, probably shoot me and shoot himself. He just yanked a handkerchief out and started crying. But, <laughs> you, know, you get you get every kind of, you're right, the tinfoil hat, people that know that there's a conspiracy out there. They want to talk to the embassy or they want to talk to a CIA officer. But that said, we do get legitimate volunteers. And we have had some knucklehead CIA officers who've turned away extremely good sources. The most classic example was a uh, Russian, you may have heard of the Matroykin papers, Vitaly Matroykin, he was a KGB archivist, meaning he was in their archives keeping track of all their operations, and he defected to one of the Baltic states, I believe it was to Latvia. And, and this wasn't all- during the time when Angleton was uh, no, out of CIA, no, was no, it? No, okay. this was this was later in the uh, in the uh, either I think it was in the late eighties, and he walked into our embassy in Riga and volunteered to the station chief, who turned him away not once but twice, and the guy ended up going to the British, and he. Uh, he was later. You know, we were going to debrief him. You know, the British share a lot of sources with us, and he almost refused to meet with the CIA because he said, "I offered my services to you twice and was turned away." So the the point is, as I'm saying, is there are people out there who really want to talk to us who are legitimate gold mines of information, and sometimes you have some idiot that turns them away. So. Well, let's let's circle back a little bit. Let's go back and talk about uh, to because I don't want to give it short shrift your early stages. But you said you came on and you were learning stuff during that time. And I know you can't officially acknowledge it, but it's common knowledge that there's a place uh, maybe somewhere in southern Virginia, uh, a military base, but uh, called you know <laughs> the boys in the woods, you know, lost in the woods, but Camp Perry. But there is a facility, the farm where they do training. So you don't need to, you can neither confirm nor deny, but at some point you do have to go through training. When does that kind of training start for you? Are you at headquarters for a while and then go to training or how does that work? Yes. Uh, normally you you start, in my case, I was supposed to have two, we call them interim assignments of about three months each, uh, where you are on a country desk somewhere helping to do name traces, looking up information on and uh, supporting the field. In my case, I did three interim assignments because my wife was due with our baby uh, at a specific time when I was supposed to go to the farm. And so they said, no problem, Jim, we'll put you in a, another class that comes after that. So um, 
So I went down to the farm and this was about, I think about 11 months after I'd started. So I'd had three interim assignments, had some other basic training, and then was sent to the farm for several months. And that was, uh, I loved it. Some people, some people don't like it. I, I just loved it. It was, it was wonderful. And had a, um, I remember one training exercise we had, which still sticks in my mind. Uh, we had been role-playing as a case officer in a mythical foreign country and developing a source who was ostensibly a member of their foreign uh, service, member of their uh, their diplomatic service. And the what we didn't know as students was that the instructor was going to, at a certain point, whip out his credentials, exposing the fact that, in fact, he was a member of the local security service and not a member of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and he was going to put you under arrest and see how you reacted to the fact that your cover had just been blown, you're getting busted, basically being arrested, and how you reacted to that. And I still remember the instructor, he whipped out his credentials, he had his plastic cuffs in his hand, and I my reaction was one of not terror or fright, but of delight. And I said, oh, that is so much better. Now you are worth so much more to me. And I went into this full pitch to him, and the guy, the instructor, he puts his, he slowly put his credentials back in his pocket. And he told me later, he said, you know, I felt like a bird in front of a snake. He said, you had me totally captivated. And I, I was the only one out of 30 some students to not be arrested, but instead to request, to, uh, to basically recruit the so-called arresting officer. So... <laughs> See, there you go. That's that's making lemons out of you know lemonade out of lemons, man. But 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 what? Where do you think that came from? Because I was going to go back and ask you to tie into that. What is it you thought Mr. Woods saw in you that said, "Yeah, I, I don't need you to be a corporate lawyer, weenie type. I need you in the field." You you know, we talked early on, right before we started, we talked about Malcolm Gladwell, some of the books you've read, and I've read like Blink. It's that ability to look at something, and which you used later in your career to assess people. What do you think it was that Mr. Woods saw in you that said, now, nah, this guy's destined for the field, uh, not OGC? I, I think I'm pretty good in communication. I've got, uh, I'm, this sounds immodest, but I think I have pretty damn good interpersonal skills. I genuinely care about people. I'm empathic. Uh, I often say that in order to recruit someone, I need to get inside their head and feel like them. I need to know what the stresses you are and to try and take that stress away, to relieve your stress. I have a very um, soothing voice. One of my assets said, Jim, when you're talking to me, it's like my brain is in a warm water bed. And I, I relax them. I become their therapist. And they'll tell me things that they wouldn't tell their best friend or their spouse. And I, um, I believe that all of that, you know, I'm, I'm persuasive. I believe that um, I don't want to, you know, antagonize people. I try and find good in everybody. I mean, and that's, that's hard sometimes. I mean, let's face it. Uh, you guys had to arrest people that we would refer to as scum or trash or, you know, criminals, you know, really terrible people. But I think if you look hard enough, you can find something good in every person and you try and focus on that and then let them know that you are going to uh, be with them on their side. You're trying to bring them onto your side. I uh, recall a friend of mine 
he recruited a key Iranian source, and the uh, source was worked for us inside for a number of years. And when he came out, it was during the time of the uh, there was a, a bit of a rapprochement between the United States and Iran, and there was a soccer match going on between the two countries, sort of like ping pong diplomacy in the seventies with China. And Iran beat the United States. Well, my friend got his Iranian asset. He was exfiltrating him to the United States, and he casually said, oh, I wanted to congratulate you on the fact that your team won. And the guy looked at him, and he said, no. He said, my team lost. And it's they, they transfer. That's how they, they justify this. They transfer allegiance to us. They're now on a different team. I recruited... Uh, a person, it took me 11 years to recruit this individual because he didn't have any uh, flaws or any stress marks that I could see early in his career. But he went through a terrible divorce, and I became a specialty in preying upon people going through divorce because it's a very psychologically and financially stressful time. See, and, there's your legal training just works out for you. Hey, I'm, I'm a divorce lawyer, too. I can help you. Right. Well, they actually headquarters nicknamed me Dr. Divorce because I got three people within a short period of time that were in those rocky, those stormy seas of divorce. You know, you're, you're basically at your lowest. And I managed to recruit this guy, and it took me like 30 seconds to break cover after 11 years of having known him and reveal who I really was. And he said, you know, now I've got something to believe in because in the meantime, uh, his ethnic group had been replaced by another ethnic group. And so he was no longer the golden boy. He was now at the point where he wrote me and he said, Jim, I could work 24 hours a day, seven days a week and never, ever be promoted again. There is that glass ceiling over me. And he says, how can somebody work and give allegiance to a country which treats its people like this? So that's like a big neon sign saying recruit me. So I asked him to come to a third country. I recruited him within 30 seconds. He went back to his home country to the foreign ministry that he was assigned to. And this was about the time of 9-11. And he said later, he said, Jim, I almost had a counterintelligence disaster because as I was watching those twin towers fall, I began weeping. I've been I began crying. I became very emotional. And my colleagues were wondering, why are you so wrapped up? This is in America. This is not in our country. And he says, what they didn't know is I'm on your team now. And so they, they, they psychologically deal with the fact that they've betrayed their country or their organization by transferring allegiance to us. And that's what I wanted them to feel like. I, I never used what the Russians or the Chinese frequently do is use coercion, blackmail, honey traps. What they call them, swallows the... Swallows, the, yeah. No. Yeah. And by the way, I won't deny that we have not tried that. We've tried it. And maybe, you know, for the Russians and the Chinese, it works. Maybe if we wanted to do that. My much, much preferred course, however, is not to do that. And it's not a moral choice. It's because I don't want a rattlesnake in the backseat of my car as I'm driving down the street. I want these people to really want to work for me, to really want to steal the information that we want, to want to please me and to feel good about it, to be part of the team. And I praise them. I would get, sometimes I would deliberately 
in advance uh, tell headquarters, okay, I need X amount of money to pay this guy a cons- what we call a consulting fee to become one of our spies. And I might tell them, tell my headquarters twice the amount or substantially more than I thought it would really take. And I'd get approval for that. But then when I would recruit the person, I would maybe tell them 25, 30% less than that. But then six months later, I would give them a bonus because I already had it built into my budget. And that is really encouraging to people when you say, you know, you've done such a great job and you've made me look good. And I want to, I want to thank you for that. And so I would, you know, budget, you know, move up their, their compensation from say uh, $1,500 to $2,000 a month or something like that. That was a, you know, a big morale builder with these people. They knew I was on their side. Morgan, be careful. He's starting to try to recruit us. You know that. Yeah, I know. Hey, well, <laughs> smooth talk and the money. He had, and- he had me hitting hypnotizer. I was getting ready to go out and tell him stories about what I did back when I was a kid. Oh my God! Uh, there was this time in a hardware store, I, but I returned the items. Uh, anyway, just, just so you know, Jim, he used to live in Iran. So I grew careful. up during the days of the Shah. My first language, a foreign language, I spoke was Farsi. Well, we should have recruited you as a case officer. We always need. I, I tell. Anybody who wants to be a case officer, we have four, at least four languages that are in critical need. One of them's Farsi, another one's Arabic, and then there's Russian and Chinese. Now, if you know some other foreign language, that's great, because usually if you can speak two languages, it makes it much easier for you to speak a third language. But Farsi, Arabic, Russian, Chinese, those are certainly the four top hard languages that we want people. And anybody out there in your listening audience who has those kind of linguistic skills, I guarantee you the CIA would like to talk to you. CIA.gov slash jobs. You can go there. Oh, chip down the bunch. Yeah. 1-800-I'm-A-SPY. Whatever you do, don't use the telegram. A hacker was able to get into the telegram and ch- change the link and had it go back to his personal page of the people that were recruiting. But we digress there for a minute. I was going to ask you, though uh, – I used to teach behavior analysis, interview, and interrogation, and one of the places I taught out was NSA. We taught out at the National Cryptology School, and we had damage assessment agents out there. And some of them actually went back in time. They worked on uh, Alder James. They worked on Earl Edwin Pitts, uh, Harold James Nicholson, uh, folks like that. Then you had guys like Robert Hansen come later. It always amazed me. I mean, there are there are cases in when we would recruit uh, Russians, uh, KGB, G, you know, GRU back in the day. Some of them wouldn't take any payment. For them, it wasn't about the money. It was about they were against communism. They were against they love their country. But it always seems Americans, Americans, you want to get them, you throw money at them. I, I see. I see very few cases in American history of traders. You know, and I'll tell you, people like Ames Hansen, fucking traitors, is the only appropriate term for them. But everybody like that seemed to do it for money, plus the ego, you know, the power they got that behind. But money was always a driving factor in your recruitments. Where, what was the when did you see with some of these? Was it dependent upon the country, the religion, the, the you know ethnicity? What were the primary drivers for a lot of your folks for wanting to join, as you say, Team America? Okay, you, you're probably both familiar with that acronym, MICE, MICE, M-I-C-E. yeah. I believe that's, that stands for money, ideology, coercion, and ego. I believe that no one is ever recruited solely for money. I think that's a, an, I think that's absolutely a wrong. You know, they may want the money, but it's because they're having an affair, because they have gambling debts, because they uh, need the money for something. But Alder James does. was uh, in debt, divorced, living in right. had a wife yeah. with expensive tastes. Yeah, right. And you're right. He there was money involved. Absolutely. In fact, when I recruited my assets, I wanted to get money involved 
just because it would focus their attention. And somebody, I, I sometimes say, look, I'm an attorney. You know, you, I get a retainer. I'm putting you on retainer. This focuses you so that I, you know that if I have a request, I get to the head of your queue. I get prioritized. You know, I get to be a frequent flyer, if you will. And uh, But money is never by itself, in my opinion, the uh, the motivation. Ideology, you mentioned that, Morgan. I mean, we had a lot of people from communist countries that were disgusted with communism or disgusted with the system. And that's an ideological recruitment. I had a couple of those. That's very pure. Uh, coercion, I've already addressed that earlier. I don't like to use that at all. Uh, because I don't want somebody to be a, a traitor to me. I don't want them to betray me. But and it's not permanent either, right? I mean, when you use coercion, you got to keep using coercion. You want that ideological, like the asset you're talking about, that joined Team America, and they cried when something well, happened to America. Well, I think the strongest motivation is probably ego. There's something going on. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story of one of my earliest uh, recruitments. I had uh, received a cable, a classified cable from Langley, which told me that, in, in fact, it went to every station and base, CIA base worldwide, which informed us that in the next 18 months, the United States was going to be engaged in a series of very, very high-stake uh, negotiations, which would greatly affect our national security with a certain country, which will go unnamed. But we had absolutely no assets from this country who could give us their negotiating positions. And they then described the uh, ideal profile that such an asset would have. He would be seconded to their foreign ministry, but he would have access back to this other ministry and be, you know, basically would probably almost certainly be on their negotiating team. As luck would have it, I had met just such a person a few weeks earlier in a completely innocent social uh, occasion. He and I had liked each other. So I began intensifying what we call our developmental activities, meaning I wanted to you know, befriend him, get to know him, look for what those vulnerabilities, if he had any, were. And after about, I don't know, probably six, seven, eight weeks, I sent a cable to Washington, basically outlining why I thought I could recruit this guy. It was an incredibly naive and poorly written cable. I had no clue, really, what the stresses in this guy's life were. At least I couldn't articulate them. And I made a case for the fact that I could recruit him based just on the fact that we were friends and that I, was, I could persuade him to do this. It was lunacy. But headquarters was so damn desperate, they agreed to my lunatic scheme of just basically it wasn't a cold pitch by any means, but to be able to pitch somebody, convince them to commit espionage based on the strength of your friendship. And that is incredibly naive. Nevertheless, I got approval. I took the guy to dinner and I launched into my first recruitment pitch of my career. The guy looked at me and he said, Jim, you and I are friends. But what you're proposing is morally wrong. Now, as I said earlier in this program, I've pitched at least 50 or 60 people in my career, and he is the only person that ever posed a moral objection. Most of the time, you can imagine what they say. They, they uh, cite fear. 
basically that's that's why you get turned down most of the time what was your batting average you said 50 or 60 and not so much betting average, but on average what is a good percentage i should say for pitching versus getting actual recruits i was over 90 percent wow Somebody somebody once asked me, well, Jim, would you pitch somebody who you didn't think you could recruit? And I said, why would I do that? <laughs> but, but I mean, you usually have a feeling for this. In this case, I, maybe I had a feeling, I don't know, but he turned me down. Okay, now we have a saying at CIA that it's okay for a case officer to be turned down, but not turned in. Meaning, what happens if he goes and tells his ambassador that he was just propositioned to commit treason by young Mr. James Lawler, third secretary of the American embassy. And this, his ambassador had a horrible reputation for being a real loudmouth. And I could just, in my mind's eye, envision this ambassador storming into our ambassador's office and lodging a strongly worded protest about what outrageous activities Mr. Lawler had done, propositioning his employee. In fact, the guy I just pitched was his deputy. This was the number two guy at his embassy. You know, he was the number two guy. He was the ambassador's deputy. And I just pitched him. I could just see that, you know, the shit was going to hit the fan. And I thought, even though I have CIA headquarters approval, I could immediately see them going into full CYA profile. You know, how did Lawler screw this up? You know, and I would be left twisting in the wind. And, and you could so, be declared, as they say, too, P&G. They could kick you out of the country, well, right? I wasn't, if you, were, you weren't in the country, though, right? Well, I was not. I was not in the country of the person I pitched. But you're okay. right. I mean, I've come close to P&G before. Believe me, I know it real well. And, and let everybody know, too, we, we talk about all the time persona non grata. But what does that mean that uh, from your standpoint? You, were, you have just done activities the incompatible with your diplomatic status, meaning espionage. Or it could be criminal activity, too. But Well, in fact... Espionage is criminal, so I would have been, you know, declared persona non grata in a country. Had he, you know, been a native of that country, they could easily declare me PNG, which means I would have anywhere from twenty-four hours to a few days to get my butt out of town and out of that country. And the only thing protecting you at that point was that you guys would work under diplomatic cover. You'd have a diplomatic status, I would, right? I had a black passport, which unfortunately did my colleagues in Iran no good when the embassy was overrun. And they were held hostage for 444 days, including a friend of mine who was on his very first tour as a CIA officer there. But I digress. Anyways, my mind, I'm thinking, what if he goes to his ambassador? You know, my career is going to go down the you know what. So after about three days, I finally became brave enough to give him a call just to take his temperature and see if <clears throat> he and I were still friends. And I was greatly relieved when he didn't hang up the phone in my ear. And I said to him, you know, we had such a good time the other night. I was thinking it'd be kind of fun to go out again this Friday and do it again. I felt a lot of relief when he said, Jim, you know, I was thinking the same thing. So a few days later, I go to this meeting, this dinner meeting with this guy. And my only goal is to basically smooth any stormy seas I've created, backtrack, tell him, I'm sorry if, if you were insulted. Maybe you, you probably took this out of context. You know, I was going to go in full uh, cover my own ass mode and try and smooth it over with this guy if his feathers were ruffled. Well, I never even got into that. The waiter dropped the menus off, walked away. 
the very first words out of my friend's mouth, Jim, that offer you made me last Friday, is that still good? <laughs> he just needed time to think about it, huh? Well, and the fact they didn't turn you in either. He, sh- if he was, if he was doing what he should have done, it would have been turned in right away. You would have known about it. But, th- but that's kind of your clue, right? That you've got him at, at least he's exposed himself to some um, uh, danger too. You know, some to peril because he hasn't, he hasn't reported you as doing that provocation, or at least to my knowledge, he hasn't. But he said, he said, what you don't know is two days after our dinner, my wife announced that she wants a divorce. And he said, I can't go back to my home country next summer, 18 months from now, and pay her the alimony to which she's entitled and put my two high school age boys in private schools, because in my country, you have to go to a private school or you don't get a good education. I can't do that unless I accept your offer. I know it's morally wrong, but I can't. I've got to I've got to do it. And Dr. Divorce strikes again. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, I, I started to say something about how it's never morally wrong for friends to help each other. But I remembered something from law school. If the judge rules in your favor, shut up and get out of court quickly. And so I shut up and got out of court. And the very next time he and I met, he brought with me, brought me a stack of six inches of classified material from his embassy. And as he handed it to me, he told me, he said, Jim, let me tell you something. I hate my ambassador. That son of a bitch steals the credit for everything I do and everything everybody else in my embassy does. And he goes around this country like a little banty rooster saying what a hero he is. He says, I hate the guy. And as I hand you this classified material, it's as if I'm kicking that son of a bitch in the face. And I told him, I said, you know, you and I are friends. Go get some more of this and let's kick that son of a bitch again. <laughs> revenge is a dish best served ice cold, man. Absolutely. To me, revenge is one of the purest motivations because people think I'm not betraying them. They betrayed me first. And that's how they can rationalize something that... Every everybody, unless they're a nar- pure narcissist or a socio- pure sociopath, would know this is not something that my parents taught me to do to betray my country. But if you feel like you've been betrayed first, it's it's the uh, the Jesuits even refer to this as covert compensation, and he was compensating for that. It became, by the way, more complex even than that. Uh, and I've, I've learned that motivations for espionage are usually not single, single motivations. There may be one thing that tips them over, but it's usually what I call a whole mosaic of motivations. In his case, okay, he had the emotional need of, you know, here he needed a friend going through a divorce. He needed some money to put his kids in private schools and to pay his wife, ex, soon-to-be ex-wife, alimony. He hated his ambassador. So this was a huge factor. But Another motivation, or at least one he articulated to me, was that he was a light-complected, blonde, blue-eyed native of a country that most of the people are much darker-complected, and he claimed that he was the victim of reverse discrimination. I don't know if that's true or not, but it was another rationalization. But the final motivation I found out was when we ultimately polygraphed this man. And the reason we were polygraphing him, and again, I am not a big believer in polygraphs. I know you two guys are in law enforcement. I'd love to hear your views in a few moments. 
But, you know, all a polygraph is really is a stress detector. But he was going to, my newly recruited asset was going to go back to his home country and be handled by one of my colleagues who is what we call a NOC, N-O-C, non-official cover, meaning somebody posing not as a diplomat, but as a business person. And a business person, a NOC, does not have diplomatic immunity. If they are caught, then they would be either, well, they could be shot. Well, it's the mission impossible. If you're caught or killed, the agency will disavow any knowledge. Well, we're not going to disavow, but what I'm saying is they go to jail. I don't, I wouldn't go to jail. I would get out of, I would be, you know, thrown out of the you'd country. You'd get rolled up, you'd be held for a while, they'd threaten you or whatever, but you'd have to be turned over. I'm not going to be held. But here, this man that I had recruited, why had he suddenly changed his mind? Was there a possibility that he was a double? Very unlikely because he had provided such compromising material to us uh, over the past several months. But we had to basically put him through this polygraph test, what we call a counterintelligence polygraph test, to ensure, at least to the extent possible, that he was a legitimate asset and not a double agent. So in a CI polygraph like this, you try and keep it to essentially three questions. Like, number one, have you told anyone about your secret relationship with CIA? That should be easy, yes or no. Number two, are you working for any intelligence organization other than CIA? Should be black or white, black and white, right there. And number three, uh, did anyone instruct you to volunteer to Mr. Lawler at that dinner? Again, black and white. And the polygrapher, the operator who is doing this test, is supposed to have rehearsed those questions with the case officer and stick to those questions unless the subject being tested gives the operator license to go somewhere else. They can't just go off on a fishing expedition. They have to stick to those questions uh, for a strict counterintelligence polygraph. Well, in my case, I got a young, naive, first-tour polygraph operator who had never been overseas. I doubt if he'd ever even met a foreigner before. And the first words out of his mouth were, golly gee, I'm just wondering why you're doing this. And I thought, oh my God, my one guy, my guy who's had a moral qualm about this is going to have an epiphany and he's going to storm out of here. I was greatly relieved when he laughed and he said, because I think this is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> well, golly gee, Sarge. He was, a, he was a thrill seeker. And so he, anyways, he easily passed this polygraph test. He went back into his country, uh, I think about six months later. And what he did for us was, if you've ever been in a negotiation to buy a house or a car, wouldn't it be nice if you're the buyer to know the bottom dollar you could offer the seller before they walk away? He told us not only what their negotiating positions were, but what their fallback positions were. And it was estimated that he saved the United States tens of billions of dollars because he provided that key information to us. Wow. I, I got a question for you. So when you select a target, it sounds like you have to get pre-approval from Langley to recruit these people. Is that true? That's true. Yes. You get what we refer to as a provisional operational approval. In other words, you outline 
uh, number four, one, you know, you've developed this person, you've assessed that they have access. You don't recruit people who don't have access to something that we need. Uh, you've been approved, you know, the boss, if you're working for a chief, he or she, you know, encourages you or discourages you. You know, they, they may discourage you if they think it's a waste of time. Uh, but if it's somebody that we think has access or at least potentially has access, then you're encouraged to do that. But you can't pitch somebody unless you've got this approval from headquarters to go ahead. Okay, so you've pointed out the vulnerabilities. Here is what you think you need to persuade this person. Maybe you need a certain amount of money for their retainer. And um, and you get that. But you can't just willy-nilly go and pitch somebody without headquarters saying, yes, this is worthwhile, do it. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash gameofcrimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash gameofcrimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.